Hey guys, it's Steve with Unashamed and Afraid. Um, we are just super excited about some of the stuff that's going on right now, and so we wanted to make sure to get the word out to everyone. So in case you didn't take the opportunity to listen to our New Year's episode, um, we uh, are just engaging in larger and larger efforts to try and be more unashamed and more unafraid. And what we've realized in, in prayer and as we got together as a team um the two big things that we want to accomplish in 2020 are one, to spread the message to more ears, more audience, get more hope out there to anyone who's struggling or as a family member or spouse that's struggling with sexual addiction um, and is having a hard time believing healing's real or finding healing or finding the right resources. The other thing that we came across is last year we were able to sponsor three women and one man to go to a retreat um, to help recover the Wild at Heart Retreat and the Heart of Woman Retreat, which we we pump all the time on here, is great resources, which they are. Um, and what we realized is that there are a lot of people who want to participate in helping people with recovery. And we've gotten a lot of feedback from people saying, hey, what can I do to help? How can I help? And we've realized one barrier we found with so many good people is they just can't afford it. They can't afford the therapy. They can't afford the retreat, the intensive the group therapy, whatever it is. Um, and so that's the second half of what we wanted to accomplish this year. So we um, have filed for our nonprofit. So we're in a nonprofit status now. And we are going to start getting a subscriber donation and giving away bonus content so that um, we can help fund people's recoveries. So uh, we talked about in the New Year's episode that that was kind of the general idea, and we've kind of got it all lined up now in the specifics, so we're doing some cool things that I want to go over. So first off, um, no one's getting paid on our side. So your donation dollar, which we'll have on our website, um, so you can find all of this by going to unashamedunafraid.com and go to the donate page. And so what you're going to find there is every all of our 2019, you'll see all of our expenses. So everything that we spent in 2019 from our Website, everything, expenses just to run the podcast, to get the message out there, the website. The one thing you'll see on there is our salary line is at zero. So we don't pay Jason for doing the audio, any of us for doing any of the back end work, the writing, no one's getting paid. So we're paying for those expenses and the rest of the money, 100% of the rest of the money is going to scholarships, to put together scholarships to help people get individual therapy, couples therapy, group therapy, and go to any retreat or something functional like that, like the Warrior Heart Retreat and different things. So with those who are willing to subscribe, we're going to do two forms of bonus content. So one, on every episode that we have going forward, um, we don't have it on this episode because we've recorded with Dr. Moore before we actually were starting to do bonus content. So in lieu of the near future, so all of our episodes, we're going to have the episodes that you guys have already been getting, same format, same everything the same, but also we're taking the time to create additional content with those episodes. So when we record a couple story, you're going to get their episode and more. Um, and then we're also doing full bonus episodes. So what we're doing for our bonus episodes this year, we decided to try and uh, live our own message of being unashamed. Um, so as you guys know, um, out of the five of us running the podcast right now, there are two of us who have continued to kind of struggle with our sobriety and finding that peace, me and James. Um, in our personal journey, we've realized one thing we need to do is really engage in doing the 12 steps. We've never done it before. 
Uh, we're really engaging. So for our bonus content, um, James and I are going to talk about our journey going through the 12 steps, not how it should be for everyone else, but our specific stories and what's going on and how we're reacting to the 12 steps. And also we have uh, a guy that we've met in our journey, Joe. He just did his full disclosure with his wife and he's starting at the beginning of his journey. He's also going to be doing the 12 steps with us. So those will be our f- full bonus episodes. So the obvious question that any marketing person would tell you is I need to tell you how you subscribe to those. So um, all you have to do is go to unashamedunafraid.com to the donate page. Um, so unashamedunafraid.com slash donate will get you straight there. Um, and so all you have to do is subscribe monthly. So we recommend 5 or $10. If really all you can afford is a dollar, that dollar is still going to make a difference. We'd love for you to subscribe to get the bonus content. Um, We want to be able to give back if you're willing to give to the larger message of helping people. So um, I've shared this several times on the podcast, but where the name Unashamed Unafraid came from was from a song by Lecrae, a Christian hip-hop artist, and the song's called Outsiders. And he's describing Christians in general being outsiders. And he says, there's plenty of people like me, all outsiders like me, all unashamed and all unafraid to live out what they're supposed to be. And we've thrown a lot of different names around. We just don't want to cop out and to do another Lecrae thing. But we, we came to the term outsiders because the truth is there are so many people struggling with sexual addiction, and they're not dealing with it. They're not talking about it. So if you're someone who is talking about it, you are an outsider in our society. If you believe that God's hope is real, that change can happen, and you're willing to talk openly about, you know, all of these things going on. Um, I had one managed email, and he's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get up in church and talk about my story. I've been invited to speak in church on Sunday, and I'm going to talk about my story. That is an outsider. And outsiders, there's really three key things that we've come to find. Outsiders are bold. Getting up and speaking in your church and sharing your real heart and your real story, I can't think of anything more bold than that. The other big thing is the acceptance. Not acceptance from anyone else, but acceptance from God. That your story is your story, that God loves you right where you're at, His grace is real, His healing power is real, and the hope is there. And also that you're unashamed that you're willing to speak out and to put all of that in action. So we invite everyone to subscribe, to join that subscriber base we're identifying as outsiders. So we invite everyone listening here to become an outsider, unashamedunafraid.com slash donate. So since we're just starting this, we want to start something, um, kind of do kind of a, a, a giveaway ramp up for our first 50 subscribers. We're going to kind of do something special. And so for our first 50 subscribers, if you subscribe, we um, have – been graciously given access for our first 50 subscribers to the Leading Saints Virtual Summit on Addiction Recovery. Um, I cannot tell you how valuable this is. Um, So it's over 30 hours from experts all doing individual sessions from how to talk to your kids, how addiction works, betrayal trauma, how to help people, people's personal experiences. Like there's just all these different sessions. It's over 30 hours of content. So if you subscribe, you are going to get lifetime free access to that virtual summit with leading saints. I I cannot say enough about the virtual summit. Um, I also was able to participate on the back end. I'm one of those 30 hours. I'm talking about my process being excommunicated and how to support people and that and all that. So it, it's donating five, just $5 a month. Um, you would have to pay a little over $60 at leading saints just to get that content. And if you think about it, you're paying $60 if you donate $5 a month here. You're going to pay $60 in the year 
to get that 30 hours of content, which is beyond the value that's there already, and your $60 is going to go to help fund someone else's recovery. So that's a win-win. That's So we're trying to create, you know, really an environment where you you can do something to help, right? To be that outsider, to be bold, accepted, to be unashamed. So with every $5 that you donate, whether it's a one-time donation or you subscribe, so for every $5 you donate, that basically gives you one ticket into our lottery for a giveaway for a spot at one of the two retreats that we had all the time. It's amazing what it's done for people. We have, uh, for the men's, we talk about it all the time. We have several episodes of men talking about their experience at the Warrior Heart Boot Camp. Um, also, the Heart of a Woman Retreat. We also have an episode of the women who got sponsored last year and their experience. Incredible miracles. I've never met anyone who's gone and regretted it. So we're giving away a spot. It doesn't have to be for you. You can take that spot and give it to someone. You know, So if you're a wife listening, you want to give it to your husband who's an addict. If you're an addict who's listening, you want to give it to your wife to kind of help her and give her that space for her own journey. Either way. So for every $5 you donate. So if you're like, all I can do is a one-time donation, $5, boom, you've got your ticket. If you choose to subscribe, that's $5 a month. So you're getting 12 entries into that giveaway. Um, and so that's for our first 50 people who choose to subscribe. Um, and so love for you to be one of those first 50. Subscribe now, unashamedunafraid.com slash donate. And then the other thing we want to, we're going to give away and continue to do this on a consistent basis is we've heard a lot of people's stories of recovery and a lot of people who have been successful. And I was actually having a conversation with Kurt Frank from the leading saints once. And I was like, yeah, I hear these stories and there's definitely themes in certain points that it's like, if you do those things and these things happen, recovery is going to work out. And he's like, well, I'd want that information. And I think he's right. So we've put it together. So we've put together a PDF document outlining all of that information. We call it our, our keys for recovery. And this is the things that we've gathered from our personal experience and all the stories that we've heard of how and what really makes recovery possible and linking those to the right resources and contexts for action steps to really kind of help connect. So it's a really great document for if you're feeling stuck, if you're looking for first steps or your family member, parent trying to support someone in recovery. So in order to get that document, all you have to do is subscribe by email. So if you can't donate right now, we understand you can go to our website on every page everywhere, subscribe via email, and we will send you our keys to recovery document. So in summary, our outsiders are those who are bold, accepted, and unashamed. For our first 50, the giveaway is for every $5 that you subscribe. That's getting you a ticket into our giveaway for a spot either at the men's retreat or women's retreat for a Warrior Heart Boot Camp or for Heart of a Woman. Also, that's getting you lifetime access to the Virtual Summit of Leading Saints, over 30 hours from experts in the field from all angles talking about sexual addiction recovery and support and betrayal trauma. You're also getting the consistent bonus content. Every episode that we put out is going to have additional bonus content and time of additional questions, depth and stories, um, information from experts. And also, you'll be able to get the full bonus episodes of the 12 steps, the guests that we'll have on, James, me, and Joe going through our own process of recovery and what we're learning currently in time uh, so you can go on that journey with us get all of that bonus content and of course if you can subscribe only by email you'll also get our keys to recovery pdf uh, we're grateful for 
everyone who has supported us, um, you know, given us five stars on iTunes and helped things grow and, and done things, followed us on social media at Unashamed and Afraid. And we hope you enjoy this episode with Dr. Moore. He's a wealth of knowledge talking about shame. And uh, we invite all of you to continue to be unashamed and unafraid. And this year we extend the additional invitation to join us in this journey um, of helping other people recover and spread the hope by becoming an outsider. Welcome to Unashamed Unafraid, a show unashamed about sexual addiction recovery and unafraid of coming into Christ for healing. Where we talk about real recovery stories, answer anonymous questions with experts, and share resources that actually work. I'm your host, Steve. And I'm your co-host, Jason. And we are Unashamed Unafraid. So, um... Dr. Adam Moore, despite, um, truly he's actually a humble guy, to be honest. Yeah. Like, as we talked with him, I was like, dude, this is a humble dude. This guy's a freaking big deal. Yeah, he crushed it, too. Oh, crushed it. Yeah. So, uh, totally embarrassed. We're finally doing a post about shame. <laughs> which you think would be one of, like, the first three posts I, mean, it's I would a, do it's when I started podcast, this. podcast, right? Yeah. Yeah. Rub it in, Jason. Rub it in. <laughs> um, so, we have him on to talk about shame. And before you immediately hit click, I know what shame is. We didn't just say, hey, Dr. Moore, what is shame? And he quoted some Brene Brown stuff. That is not how this went down, right? I mean, it's part of it. But yeah, not, not, no. So, I mean, we asked a him a lot more. of questions like, okay, if I'm someone in addiction, why do I care about shame? What does it matter? How does it function with me? How does it function with my family members? And so we really got into it contextually um, with what we have going on. Yeah, for sure. So one of the things that I was thinking, I mean, Steve, uh, being that this is the first time we've really addressed the title of the podcast, right? Um, in in making this podcast, you know, you you chose the name Unashamed Unafraid. I mean, why are we talking about shame? Why is that so important to to de-shame and be unashamed? Yeah, so it, it was interesting in the podcast, um, Dr. Moore talked about, he's like, if you focus on any single piece, like trauma or like any single, or shame or any single piece, he's like, you're missing the boat. Like no single piece is the end-all answer to why you have an addiction or you have life problems. Right. But here's the the reason why to me is to me – acknowledging the shame and starting to deal with it, in my opinion, is the first step of real recovery, right? So I I got the name from a Lecrae song, Outsiders, where he talks about embracing truly being a Christian. He says, there's plenty of people like me, all outsiders like me, all unashamed and all unafraid to live out what they're supposed to be. And so to me, that's the root of what we're trying to do here is we're just trying to get people started and engaged and then if they're feeling hopeless in their recovery, to get re-engaged. And the thing you have to do is walk through that shame, which will be like counterintuitive. It'll be like, do you want to feel safe? Jump off a building. And you're like, why would I do that? <laughs> right? But that's how it feels when you confront your shame. And I Absolutely. remember when I did that, April 2014, I can take you to that moment. Kayla was out of town. I finally sat with myself and all my acting out. And I was like, this is really bad and my life is going to get destroyed. 
And I had to make a choice to confront that shame or not. And, and every man who struggles with this eventually has to make that choice on some level. Right. And so to me, that's, that's, that's what it's all about. Yeah. I'm so excited for this episode. Totally. He, he crushed it and he's an entertaining guy, yeah, right? He's great. I mean, and so sometimes maybe we're kind of boring, but, um, he's <laughs> awesome. So, I mean, I don't know what else to say. Definitely should listen to follow him. Um, he has his own podcast, by the way, he we does. should it's called pocket that. therapist, pocket therapist. And on there, he talks about all sorts of things, therapy, not yeah. just sexual addiction stuff. So kind of more universal, but super great guy. Um, take the opportunity to listen to this one. I definitely think even if you've read a ton of shame and know about shame, I actually picked up a ton of stuff from what he said i mean incredible i mean blew my mind i'm going to be thinking about this one for a while so um if if you don't already know you can ask us anonymous questions will we will answer them um, with experts like dr moore whoever it is that we need to have come on so if you have anonymous question go to our website you can ask us or dm us on social media however you want to do it um follow us on social media at unashamed unafraid website unashamed unafraid.com um give us a like Give us some feedback wherever you're – give us some stars, however they're rating it, wherever you're finding this podcast, um, and, and we love to hear from you. And if you have a recovery story and you're listening to this, we're not going to stop sharing them. So if you've got a story, send us an email, um, reach out to us, and until we hear from you, talk to you next time, remain unashamed. Dr. Moore, thanks for being with us. Happy to be here. Thank you. Um, so I will kind of let you put yourself into context. If I were to describe you, I'd just be like, this guy's a freaking big deal. But <laughs> but t- tell us kind of... That's very nice of you. Kind of tell us who you are so anyone who doesn't know you can kind of yeah. put the context around that. And I, I am certain I'm way less of a big deal than other people apparently think I am. But uh, that's cool. Thanks for <laughs> Thanks for saying that. So I am a marriage and family therapist, and I've been doing this for quite a few years now. So I saw my first client in 2005, so almost almost 15 years. And uh, I was just sort of a run-of-the-mill therapist for quite a few years, but probably about, geez, probably almost a decade ago, I started specializing in compulsive sexual behaviors, porn addiction, all that kind of stuff. And that was actually in St. George, Utah, working with Jeff Ford, Jeff Stewart. Those are the guys that actually trained me up. And uh, then uh, after that, things just sort of started rolling down the hill, if you will. And now I've gotten to a point where this is all I do. I don't do any other type of therapy, pretty much. And I've got about a two-year waiting list, if you can believe that. And I run a pretty good size uh, clinic now. We've got four offices, three in Utah County and one in Las Vegas, and uh, it's called Sela Health, S-E-L-A. <laughs> yep. And that's it. That's kind of my thing. And uh, just out here trying to, I love jumping on podcasts and things like this, educate people and help people uh, figure things out, especially those who are in places where there aren't a lot of therapists who are specialized in this and they, and they need help, but they don't have access. I get calls all the time about that kind of thing. So. Yeah. No, we get emails all the time of how to find resources and that. So... Um, you know, we kind of talked about this a little bit in prep, but in, you know, we're about things like full disclosure, honesty, you know, we try and be about those things and we're honestly embarrassed in full disclosure that we have never (laughs) talked about shame on our (laughs) 
podcast that is called Unashamed, Unafraid. We've never you actually were, done a post about shame. You were waiting for this moment Three, all these years. Uh, uh, yes, all these years. So <laughs> I don't know why it took us so long to get here, but we're here. So um, yeah, obviously you deal with this all the time. So tell us, I mean, give us, for those who may just be t- tuning in for the first time ever, tell us, you know, when I Google shame, what is shame? Give us the basics. Sure. And it's interesting because nowadays uh, everybody points to Brene Brown, uh, social worker, university professor, as kind of the shame guru. Uh, But back in the 80s, John Bradshaw was the guy who talked about it. And he called it toxic shame versus uh, healthy shame or positive shame, which is kind of interesting. It's a different dynamic than we talk about uh, 20 years, 30... 1988. How many years is that away now? Is 31, just because oh I was gosh. born in 88. Wow, so That is wild. <laughs> <laughs> that is insane. So anyway, uh, so John Bradshaw was talking about it a long time ago, but then it sort of went by the wayside. Brene Brown picked it back up, and uh, it's, now, it's now popular to talk about shame again. But shame essentially is this internalized sense of uh, unworthiness, uh, uh, basically, there's something fundamentally wrong with me. That's usually how it how it turns out. And typically, people will differentiate shame from guilt, which is guilt. Uh, the, you know, the common thing you hear is guilt is I did something wrong or I made a mistake, and the shame is I am a mistake. That's kind of the most popular thing you'll hear. Mm-hmm. Um, and some researchers call it internalized shame, meaning. Uh, they would say everybody feels some shame. It's that sense of oh, there's there's something off between what I'm doing, thinking, saying, whatever, uh, and and how I should be responding to it. And internalized shame is that must mean there's something wrong with me fundamentally, not just my behavior. So it's it's problematic uh, because it basically disconnects us from other people and often from ourselves. If you feel particularly shamed about who you are as a person. Uh, you don't want to get too close to yourself either. So people will just basically numb out uh, because the the fear is if you get to know me, if you get too close, you're going to realize what a piece of junk I am and I'm going to be alone. I'm going to die alone. That's the sort of the really deep core fear. Yeah. So um, I, Brene Brown, obviously that was going to come up in this conversation, right? Um, sure. So I, we're, I do we're like... We're big Brene fans around here. Yeah, we yeah, are. Everybody yeah. is, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and well, it's just that Southern draw, the Texas accent, you know, how can you not be? But um, yeah. so the one thing I do, like she says, she is that everyone has it. Everyone has shame, right, on some level. Sure. And you say it's a problem when we internalize it. And the other thing, I guess, to kind of discuss that she brought up is um, the less, she says, the less you talk about it, the more you have of it. Right. And so yeah. you would agree it with re- that? <laughs> yeah. And it, it, it reminds me, I like telling stories, so here we go. <clears throat> it reminds me. So I have a PhD, which just primarily means I didn't want to get a real job. So I was thought if I did a few more years of school, I could escape that. <laughs> uh and I met this lady who's a professor, a math professor, and uh, I said to her, you know why we have PhDs, right? And she was like, because I wanted to teach at university. I said, no, that's not why. We were afraid that we were inherently unworthy or unlovable, and we thought that if we could get a few extra letters added to our names, that then people would care about us. And she was like, that's not why. <laughs> yeah, and I said, give it a few years and you'll come to realize that's what's going on, and then you can start therapy for that. So I have... <laughs> I have no fear about being honest about the fact that 
everybody, myself included, people often kind of feel like, wow, you're sort of at the top of your game. You probably feel great about yourself. No, I have lots of moments where I'm like, I'm a fraud. I I can't believe people are listening to me. This is ridiculous. You know, that kind of stuff. It it is absolutely universal. Steve, you can't relate to that at all, right? Not at all. Nope. Not at all. Um, (laughs) Lucky you. (laughs) And so, um, well, and so I guess my question is, how, if we're deciding the more shame I have, the less I have the capacity to recognize it, right? So there's kind of this duality going on. And so as someone who probably has a lot of shame but can't see it, like as an addict, like how would I see that, right? If I'm a guy that walked into my first 12-step meeting or first therapy session and they're like, yeah, you know, this is all a problem. And I'm like, I'm not as messed up as these guys. Whatever. I'm good. I don't have, I don't have dad issues. I don't have big trauma. I don't have all the stuff right. going on. Like I just have a bad habit. I don't even know if I'd call it a habit. I just did this right. stuff sometimes I shouldn't do it. Like how, how can that person recognize like shame, right? That is so challenging because it's kind of the same question. Like how can somebody recognize they're in denial? Right. And it's like, well, you can't, that's, that by its nature, on your own, alone, you're never going to realize that you have some kind of a problem like this because uh, shame is inherently disconnecting from people and self, and it's inherently sort of, uh, it, it pushes people to cover up what's going on. So, so most of the time when people feel deep shame, they go in one of two directions. They'll either go to deep depression, you know, or maybe anxiety, like, I am worthless, life is hopeless, there's nothing I can do about this, my existence is utterly pointless, and it's hard to even function like that, because uh, why put energy into something when really at the end of the day you're just going to be a big disappointment anyway? Or the other thing that people tend to do is they go to this perfectionism and putting on a show, or in the therapy world as we call it, impression management, That is, I'm going to manage your impression of me by only feeding you the information that I want you to have access to and keeping you for information from information that might expose the fact that I believe that I'm a fraud. So when people, uh, most people who have deep shame, it starts really early on. It's kind of believed that it often carries through families. There are shame prone families uh, you know, Jim, Dr. Jim Harper from BYU wrote a book called, I think, Uncovering Shame. And he talked about the fact that there's uh, shame prone families where you sort of pick that up growing up and you don't know it. You just think that's the way you live. That's life. That's normal. In fact, sometimes people even mistake shame for humility. They'll be like, oh, you know, I just, I'm kind of not that important. I'm not that good. I'm not special. And they think they're being humble, but really they're feeling this sense of shame. So my belief is that people generally don't come to figure it out on their own. And that's why Brene Brown is so popular. Because not only did she uncover it, she opened it up for everybody, she exposed it, but then she did it in such a way that she demonstrated her own shame. She placed herself into the middle of it, and that's what makes her so endearing, in addition to the Southern drawl, is, yeah. is that she's she's the real deal, you know? In fact, it was years later, after her first book came out, that she admitted she was a recovering substance abuser, 
and that she's in recovery and doing all this work. And that just was incredible. It's like, well, no wonder you get this, you know, you've, yeah. you've lived it. Yeah. She, she was on a, a podcast with uh, Dak Prescott and he was like, so how do you like manage, you know, yourself with this spotlight on you? And she's like, I don't, I just aired out all my dirty laundry out the gate. So there's really no management needed. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> that's, that's and that's true. But so as you talk about it, like in family systems, like, I don't know if you have, you know, client examples or examples you kind of put, like, what would be some signs or some basics if someone's listening and they're like, I don't know if my family's that shame-based or if that's a thing, like, what oh, would be yeah. a sign of that? Yeah, absolutely. So, if you grow up in a home where it's unacceptable to make a mistake, then that's a shame-prone family. And here's what it typically looks like. It's either going to be, uh, you do the very best you can and then your dad says, instead of, wow, good job, you tried so hard, I'm so proud of you, he says, that was pretty good, but these are three things you could have done better, right? And you never get to be able to achieve anything because it's always about what you could have done better. That's one example. Or uh, it's unacceptable to make a mistake because you're going to get made fun of. So there are family systems where they're, they're just joking, quote unquote, with each other, but it's really cruel joking. It's like, I'm going to make a joke at your expense and I'm going to highlight your weaknesses and your errors and all that uh, so that you don't really ever feel good enough. And as, in a strange way, those families believe that they're being um, connected and, and funny and that's just, that's the way we are. But it, you know, for a lot of people, it ends up becoming this thing where it's like, well, Nobody, does anybody actually even like me? Because all anyone ever points out is everything that's wrong with me. So things like that. Or if you grow up in a family where you feel like it's unacceptable to admit you have a struggle, like so a lot of the guys I work with, uh, and ladies too, but we don't get, uh, we could talk about that a whole other podcast. Totally. Why yep. women aren't seeking help. But um, so we'll just talk about guys because that's like 99% of my clients. Um, a lot of the guys grow up in these family systems where they don't feel it's acceptable to even admit that they have sexual feelings, that they've been compulsively looking at porn or fantasizing or whatever it is, uh, because they're afraid that that's going to change the way that people in the family system perceive them. Now, they're usually wrong. You know, almost always they go, I finally told my dad and he gave me a huge hug and said, man, why didn't you tell me 40 years ago or whatever? Um, but the shame proneness of the family uh, basically sort of in indicates in some subconscious way that you can't actually talk about your problems. You know, like people will say, I never saw my parents fight. I'm like, I'm sorry. <laughs> that yeah. must be really hard because how could you possibly know that it was okay to have feelings of anger or disappointment or any of that stuff, right? So there's all of these little things that can basically indicate that it's that there's actually a lot of shame floating in the family. The, the people that probably grew up in families that are not shame prone are the ones that really have no problem just admitting that they're human. They, they don't mind talking about their mistakes. They, they don't have to apologize all the time. They don't feel like they, you know, have to put on a show for people. And I will say, and this is really important because shame and denial really go hand in hand. They're just like best friends hanging out all the time. Um, some, a lot of people that I work with in the early phases of therapy, they say, I grew up with a great family, we had no problems, we were completely perfect, you know, and that's the denial, like, I, I put, I 
put my family on a pedestal because I can't deal with the fact that they maybe actually are super messed up or whatever. Um, so early on, a lot of people will say, no, that's not me, not me, not me. And they think, well, oh, I, I bypass that shame issue. But it's surprising to a lot of people as they get into therapy and get working on stuff that they start to, they sort of start to open their eyes and realize, you know what, actually my family was way more messed up than I was willing to admit. And that's a big deal for, for change for people. Oh, totally my story. Because I, I remember when I sat in my first group, a guy in my group described how every Sunday after his church, his dad would just beat him. And wow. I'm like, that's trauma. I understand why you're here. Right. And I'm like, for me, I was that kind of just you described that. And I, you know, my my parents and family go to therapy now as adults and have done a lot of healing. And so I'm like, no, no, my family's the one that gets it. My family's the one that does the healing and stuff or whatever. So, I mean, I fit the mold you totally just described where yeah. my initial take in was like, oh no, I'm not totally messed up. And I get in the group and guys start pointing things out and I'm like, whoo, never mind. <laughs> There's a lot going on here. So... <laughs> Um, right. so what, what's the biggest stumbling blocks that you see with people as starting to, and I'm not sure what word you would use, detoxify their shame, heal their shame. Like what's the biggest yeah. thing that keeps people from being able to do that? Well, by far the biggest thing is just awareness, right? Like we talked about. So you have to have someone who simultaneously cares about you and absolutely has no problem calling you out on the carpet on stuff. And those people are hard to find. That's why I love sending guys to 12-step meetings because, you know, you get a sponsor and the sponsor's like, hey, I like you enough to call you an idiot when I need to kind Mm -hmm. of thing. And that's a rare thing in life because a lot of times, uh, even if you're married, your spouse is often more likely to protect your feelings than they are to really confront you on things, especially if you're that kind of person who makes it uncomfortable for people to give you feedback, you know, and that's pretty common among the guys I... I work with either because they have an emotional meltdown about it or they get aggressive. uh, And so it's not acceptable to provide feedback. So um, you need to have an unbiased, if you will, I guess, if that's even possible, a third party that can say, here's what I'm seeing. And then you have to be able to believe that person and say, even though I think you're wrong, I'm going to trust that you're right. I'll often talk about um, in the show Seinfeld, there's an episode uh, where what the heck is his like best buddy's name? I said, how can I not remember the George where, where George says, I've come to realize that everything I do is wrong, you know? And so now from here on out, I'm going to do the exact opposite of everything that I've ever done. It's a classic, right? And I'll, I'll often say to guys, you're kind of going to have to get into that space where you come to realize that Everything that you've thought you've understood about yourself and the world and relationships is probably at least a little bit wrong, if not wildly inaccurate, and you're going to need to start to listen to those people who clearly care about you in spite of how much you've hurt them in order to finally get some good feedback. So that's the first thing is awareness. Well, and Um, I think to say it to us uh dumb addicts, so what I should take from what you just said is I should ask myself, do I have anyone in my life who I think would give me honest feedback about me? Yeah. And it's like the per, I'll tell you who it is. It's whoever you kind of generally avoid talking to (laughs) (laughs) because, (laughs) because you know that you don't want to hear what they have to say. Like, that's it. In fact, I had a guy once say to me, uh, should I work with the sponsor? Uh, because he's really rubs me the wrong way. And I'm like, yeah, that's the exact guy I want you to work with because I want you to be uncomfortable in a lot of these interactions, because if you're comfortable, then we're probably doing something wrong, you know? That's blowing some people away right there. <laughs> no, that I, I'm 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 
I'm sitting mind blown. So, okay, so <laughs> get someone in their life who we can take critical feedback from. Yeah. Um, what else would you put and on then, that list? And then what's the, you know, what's the, what's the other, you know, major roadblock is that you're actually fighting against your own biology here. And what we have to understand is that we are all biologically wired for survival preservation uh, kind of thing. We, we don't want to die. And one of the interesting things about our core biology is that somewhere deep in the dark recesses of our survival brain, we know intuitively that being isolated and alone is basically death for human beings. Uh, it's a little different now. We've got a major system set up with you know all of these resources and things. But say 500 years ago, if you were just like on your own trying to manage, you're probably not going to survive very long. That's why people had tribes and families. They got together for survival for that reason. And so we know intuitively that being alone, abandoned, isolated is basically death. And our bodies react that way. It's the same reason that like, if you go to give a talk or a speech or something in front of a couple hundred people, you have this horrible anxiety, this worry. I mean, I do too. I, I've spoken to like 18,000 people over the last five or six years, but I still have anxiety that I don't, I don't get to control every time I get ready to speak because my body and brain somewhere back there are doing something like this. They're like, um, hey, that's a couple hundred people. And you probably shouldn't be up here because you don't really know what you're talking about and you're going to end up saying something totally stupid and then everyone's going to hate you and you're going to die alone. So freak out. Kind <laughs> yeah. of thing. <laughs> yeah. You know? So... So we're fighting against this biology that says, do not, under any circumstances, do anything that would make people look at you like you're an idiot or not like you or not want to be around you. You know, that's like all of high school. It's just like a perpetual panic attack that everyone's not going to like you. <laughs> okay? Totally. Uh, and so then you, you you have to deal with that. And when you realize, oh, I've, I'm doing a behavior, right? that is either socially unacceptable or to me it's morally unacceptable or it's hurting other people or whatever, it's messing with my relationships, like the last thing you want to do is be like, hey, guess what? Check out this problem that I have, right? Or if you believe, if you come from a shame-prone family and you believe that you're fundamentally flawed and that no one's going to love you anyway regardless, you don't want anybody to get close to you. You don't want right. anyone to see you and so you, the fighting against our biology is excruciatingly difficult because it's, it's there and it's supposed to hijack your basic logic processes so you can survive. Uh, and so it's really hard. I, I would say those are the two biggest issues. Yeah. Um, so go down the, let's, you know, maybe take a step down the road. So yeah. I, I've gotten with that person who's giving me feedback, or I feel like sometimes when guys get disrupted by entering recovery, they start to ask some of those questions, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it is, um, you know, they have church discipline or, you know, they're separated. They kind of have some like, oh, there might be something wrong here and I should figure I this out. I, yeah, I may be in trouble. So yeah. let's say there are a couple steps past that. One thing that I know has been difficult for me in recovery is just because I'm working on my shame, it doesn't mean that everyone else recognizes their shame or wants to work on it. And I'm not talking about me going to the friends and family in my life and saying, hey, you have shame and you should work on your shame, right. by the way. It's not that, it's that... Like you said, shame is this cultural 
contextual piece. And so when when I'm trying to not have shame and I'm interacting with people who are still very shame-based, maybe the same family members who taught me shame as a kid and they're still shaming mm-hmm. me as an adult, how would you recommend some, or, you know, or talk about, you know, shame resilience? Because I can't just say to everyone in my life, hey, I'm not doing shame anymore, so if you have shame, get out. Like, I live alone, <laughs> right? So yeah. so how do you balance that, right, of, of me working on my own yeah. shame and actually healing and, and w- while there's still probably influences in my life telling me to be yeah. shame-based? Like living in a shame-prone world while you're trying to confront it, right? Yeah. <clears throat> It's extremely difficult, and the truth is it's going to be lonely. My wife and I regularly talk about the fact that when you're a therapist, like, it's hard to have friends because nobody wants to actually hang out with you because they're afraid of, like, either A, you're psychoanalyzing them and diagnosing them while you're hanging out, which I'm not, but, you know, I'm th- I'm thinking about everybody's behaviors and their motivations because I can't help myself, right? But I, I, try, I try not to. I try not to do it too, especially when I'm talking to Well, we're people. not having you over for dinner, but anyways, yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's what I'm saying. Nobody wants right. to hang out with me in real right. life. <laughs> so, uh, you know, they're worried about that, you know, but also therapists tend to be, you know, most of us, in fact, every good therapist has their own therapist and they go do their own work, right? And, and if right. they don't, I'm like, what's wrong with you, man? So... Uh, we tend to be like people that are working through our stuff, which means that we kind of can be scary to be around because we don't, we're, we're not going to like put up all the facades that everybody, and, and, and that's not that, that we're perfect, right? But we're, we're, we're going to have fewer of those facades in a lot of cases than, than the average person. So when you're working on your stuff and, and I don't care if that means you're, you know, you're in 12 step or you're in therapy or you're reading a lot of self-help books, as soon as you start to become self-aware and you start to really make changes in your life, there's going to be a whole group of people that is now extremely uncomfortable spending any time with you because they're afraid you're going to uncover their unresolved stuff. Uh, And so you will, I mean, this is guaranteed. You will lose some friends. You will have some connections that sort of dissipate in your family. uh, And that's a pretty universal experience for people. So I think you have to be prepared to be a little bit lonelier uh, than you might have been before. That's the first surprise for people. Because I think they think, man, as soon as I confront all this shame, I'm going to have all these super close bonded relationships. It's going to be awesome. But what they don't realize is there's a whole bunch of people that don't want to do their work and they're not going to want to be around you. So you've got to be aware of that. Otherwise, you're going to be really shocked and it's extremely painful. So that's the first thing. Um, as far as other shame resiliency things go, I think, well... I guess related to what I just said, you have to have some compassion for other people. It's really easy when you're doing your work to be like, everybody should do this. And I'm going to jump on the the soapbox and grab the megaphone and tell everybody, look at all the stuff I've learned. You guys should do this too. But not everybody's ready. You know, people do their work in their own timing and, and maybe that's 20 years later than you would like it to be. So being patient with the fact that people are in a different place and not judging them, because if you're sitting there on their case, even mentally, about the fact that they're still not confronting their own shame, like people feel that. They're going to know it even if you're not saying it out loud. Oh, to them. totally. Yeah. And then they're going to feel like, oh, well, this guy thinks he's better than me, right? So sometimes people create their own isolation because they're hard, they're hard to live with in their health, if that makes sense, you know? Uh, so outside of that, I think it's important to 
recognize and accept your own humanity in the process. One of the things, Kristen Neff is somebody I, I pay attention to. She's a good friend of Brene Brown. She's also a researcher and she studies self-compassion. In fact, she has a website, self-compassion.org, has lots of good free resources on it. One of the things I like a lot that she says is that um, uh, kind of confronting shame involves this thing called common humanity. And that is realizing that you're just a regular person like everybody else. You're just a normal human being. You put your pants on with the same, you know, leg, whatever that is. My, One leg right at a time, first. yep. Yeah. However that works. Yep. I was just thinking, we don't all use the first same first leg, but <laughs> one leg at a time. But some people jump right into their pants, apparently. So, <laughs> But, uh, you know, you're just a regular human. You're regular like everybody else. You're normal. You're neither better than nor worse than anyone. And I find that to be extremely helpful just in my own personal life, confronting whatever shame I have. Or sometimes when I start getting, you know, my head gets a little too big and I think, maybe I actually am a big deal, you know, that kind of thing. I go, no, Sorry, no. I started that way. Oh, geez, yeah. <laughs> I'm just a regular guy. Yeah. I'm a regular human being. I, I'm passionate about what I do, but that doesn't make me any more important or special than any other person. And I find that to be an extremely important thing to just to slow down and remind yourself of your common humanity. Try to think about how much more alike you are with other people than, than different you are. Does that make sense? So, so Dr. Moore, I got a question for you. I, every time yeah. I think of a question, you answer it, so that's great. But um, <laughs> so, so you're talking earlier about um, having that self compassion and like understanding that you're just like everybody else. You know, everybody's a normal mm-hmm. human being, right? Um, but as an addict, so we're talking about this abstractly, but let's bring it back in here. As an addict, yeah. you don't feel that way, right? I feel like. No, I'm different than everybody else. I'll, I'll give you an example. My first 12-step meeting, I went in and I hated it because I was different from everybody there. Right. They were all sad about their lives and I'm okay. Well, that's pride, but that's really shame, right? right. Yep, <laughs> so, exactly. Right. So as an addict, what advice would you give me or, or those listening to say, okay, here's how to call yourself out on that? I know we kind of already talked about that, but what does that well, question make sense? It's kind of a different question too because it's like, how can I even start on self-compassion until when I hate myself? Think. Yeah, or like <laughs> when I'm st- when I'm still acting out or whatever. I, like a lot of a lot of people will struggle with that. They're like, well, I haven't arrived at some like weird freakish level of perfection yet, which is funny because it's like, no, 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 we're not we're not doing that anymore, <laughs> right? But it's kind of ingrained into the mind of a person who has spent much of their life trying to numb out from the pain of feeling different from everyone, right? But it's also this really weird thing that people will do is like, it's like a it's like a weird, strange way of saying that I'm special. Like, I'm especially messed up. I'm especially yeah, yeah. broken. Absolutely. You know? And I see that a lot. It's like, well, if I can't be especially good, I can at least be especially broken or messed <laughs> up kind of thing. Yeah. So I think the first thing is that people have to, to say to themselves, um... I don't, this is not about being special, unique, or different. Like, I need to come to grips that even in my sickness, even in my addiction, even in my compulsion or whatever, um, I'm not that different from the average person. And that's hard to do for people in the beginning because it's so easy to compare these little micro things about yourself. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't do that behavior, but I do this, and nobody in my group seems to be doing that or whatever. I've got this terrible secret that nobody knows about me. Um, but 
if you look at a larger cultural level, and this is one thing that I really get to do as a therapist, because I get to see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people. And at the end of the day, I'm like, yeah, there's, there's really only like 12 human stories total. And everyone's life is just an iteration, a slightly different version of those core, common, basic human stories. And that allows me as a therapist to say, you know what, the human experience is varied, but it is also extremely predictable because as human beings, we're all kind of basically wired the same way. So the more you can spend time getting to know the stories of other people and getting to know people personally, you know, the real human element of them, the more you go, oh, you know what, I'm, I'm not nearly as bad off as I, I thought I was like, as a, as a therapist, I'll often say, I bet you're thinking this to a client. And they're like, how did you know you have magical powers? Yeah, right? I never had and that go, experience. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I know because there's like, I, I've talked to 10,000 other people just exactly live in your life experience, which means you can, if you were that unique, I wouldn't know anything about you. I wouldn't be able to explain your life. I wouldn't be able to say anything that resonated yeah. with you. Yeah. So the more that, the more that other people's lives resonate with you, the more you realize, Oh, I'm not that far different. So I think getting to know people is crucial. Yeah. I'll say that was one of the most healing moments for me in therapy was when my therapist made a comment like that. And I went, right. wait, n- no no because you don't know you can't know that no like (laughs) and yeah you take some time and you think you know like you were saying i'm not that specially messed up right right yeah i like that well and that i mean to be honest that you've hit on the theme of why i started this podcast and the blog was i heard other men's stories i heard chris and autumn and it was the common humanity theme I'm like, these are normal people. They're not special pretty people. They're not, like, these are normal yeah. people. And if right. they can do it, wow, someone like I could do it. You know, I always tell people, right. I'm like, my, if I, I tell people, if my story's nuts, like, Chris's story's crazy. Like I, and I was like, wow, this guy's done as, as messed up stuff as I have in my judgmental mind, like you said, of what's, what's worse or better or whatever. And so I think hearing other people's stories, I mean, that's the whole purpose of what we do. So you don't have to convince us that that's, uh, it matters. Right. Um, yeah. But I guess the, the dovetailing question I would ask with that is, it's one thing for me to hear everyone else's story, right, and connect that way. How important is it for me to share my story? And I'm not talking of couples coming on our podcast and telling the whole world. Right. But no, just we would like, love that too. Right. You're invited. Send me an email. <laughs> um, but yeah, please. But, but, how in, but how important is it that, people see my stories. I mean, is, is that an important right. part of getting out of the shame? Yeah, yeah I, I do think so. And I think you hit on something really important, two, two important things. One, you know, it, it's all theoretical until it's personal, right? And it, it has to become personal for people. Uh, that, that's why a lot of times just reading about something or just listening to or watching something uh, isn't going to actually make changes. You know, people can do read all the self-help books that they want and and watch all the videos or whatever, take all the classes, but until it becomes really personal, uh, and it often doesn't really sink in. So I do think it's crucial that people actually tell their stories. That's why in 12-step meetings, they have the first step inventory and the fourth step inventory, and then they have, you know, the uh, eighth and ninth step where you're, also where you're going inventories. to make amends. <laughs> Yeah, right? You're you're making amends, all that kind of stuff. Uh because it it's absolutely crucial for people to be able to say 
I did this. I'm ashamed of it. Uh, it. It's been a struggle. I've tried to hide it from everybody, but you know what? I'm going for broke. I'm tired of being in the shadows. I'm just going to put it out there. And if I die alone, if, you know, if everybody hates me, then I'm willing to accept that. That's where acceptance, right? And surrender come into play. Like I'm going to surrender the outcome of the decision. Of course, that never happens to anybody. Nobody, you know, there's no obituaries like he died from telling his secrets. Like that, <laughs> that doesn't happen, right? Uh, and, but it so, feels and, like it, Doctor yeah, Moore. In moment, of it course. feels like it. <laughs> Fighting against biology, right? But you also hit on something really important too. And myself and a lot of other therapists will talk about this because sometimes we see people that can be too quick, too open, too public with too many people. And that can really cause problems. So, um, like an overcompensation. Yeah, you know, you get these couples that are like, I'm going to tell everybody in the whole world what we're going through and stuff. And like they're too early in the process. You know, they're they're in this space that that we call liminal space. The liminal space is like I've started but I haven't finished yet. Yeah. You know, they're they're. And of course, in recovery, you're always in liminal space to some degree, but they're in a really early part of liminal space, and it's like. Um, you don't have the tools to manage what's going to happen when everybody knows. You don't have the ability to cope. Your relationship can't tolerate it. So I always want to caution people, like, if you're really early in the process, just because you're excited doesn't mean it's necessarily the right time. You really need to cautiously, carefully think through it if you're going to make a public display of your recovery. Sure, uh, I totally. Have, I've totally seen it ruin relationships. I've seen it totally make some better, you know, so you just don't, you can't predict. That, that uh, would be why we would recommend like a 12-step group or a therapist right. or. <laughs> but just yeah. that, because I think the natural instinct for addicts is I can do this by myself. You know, I'll tell my spouse or maybe a lot of, I won't even tell my spouse and I'll tell a church leader or a therapist and no one's going to know and I'm just going to fix this on my own, which right. I think is a tough thing to do with shame. So having your story heard somewhere not necessarily a public forum like you're saying but right yeah not isolating right not isolating. Right, there's right, a difference right. between you know what we do that it's like hey world versus you know because uh, i i talk to guys and it's like oh i would never tell my parents or siblings or my guy friends or right. anyone i know and so they right. really they're isolated in it so so here's an experience when when uh, i did my step four and five uh, when we're talking 12 steps here, right? Um, you do your step four, you do your inventory, and then step five is sharing that with another person, right? Um, so when I chose my sponsor to share that with, the first thing he told me before I shared it was, look, there's nothing in here that you can say that's going to surprise me or shock me. There's nothing in here that I haven't done or know of, right? And right. that, for me, was incredibly de-shaming. It really opened, like, freed me up to be like, I can tell this guy anything. Because all right. these things deep inside me that I've done that are just gnawing at me, but it doesn't matter because he's not going to judge me for it. He's been around the block. He knows the whole story. He he doesn't care. He's not he's not here to determine whether he's going to abandon me or not. He's just here to help. Right. Kind of thing, right? So, something uh, Brene Brown said uh, that, uh, I can't remember the exact quote, but something along the lines of, um, when you're just doing it to do your best, then your self-worth isn't on the line. Well, I mean, all of this is, I mean, you're, you've just dropped some some crazy wisdom and knowledge on us, right? I mean, I think we can take a five-minute clip of this and probably listen to it a hundred times before it really sinks in. Um, but what, as we've kind of talked about it contextually for guys, you know, struggling with addiction, um, 
what what question haven't we asked you or is there another principle or idea something else that you would bring up um is there anything else that we haven't covered which you've covered a ton that that you would want to add yeah so i i would say that you have to be careful and this is true with any recovery principle therapy principle whatever you have to be careful not to um over rely on a given principle. I, I hear a lot of people out there um, who kind of just sort of like hang on the shame thing, like it's the only thing in the universe. You know, they'll be like, the main reason people are compulsively looking at porn is because of their shame. And as an example, they'll you know people will like highlight highly religious communities. And they'll be like, uh, the the main reason people in highly religious communities are looking at porn is because of shame. And if if they didn't feel shame about it. They wouldn't do it. And it's like, well, that's not true. There's there's plenty of people who have absolutely no shame whatsoever about their behaviors, but they're still compulsively doing it. They're ruining their lives. They're losing their jobs and they can't stop despite the fact that they really wish they could stop. They just, they don't feel shame about it. They're just like, well, I can see that this is causing some problems because apparently my employer doesn't like to pay for me to watch porn all day kind of thing, you know? So I think everybody has to become aware of the fact that no matter what principle you look at, whether it's shame resiliency, you know, whether it is accountability, uh, whether it is trauma healing or whatever, like there's no individual principle. And this is true with shame. Shame is not something that is a cure-all. If you address your shame, you know, don't see it as as soon as I fix this shame issue, then I'm going to be better. Uh, or as soon as I learn to confront my shame, then my life will be so awesome. I'll have these good relationships. Because you just don't know which component of it is going to make the the big difference for you. And sometimes you'll confront your shame and you'll have the same level of compulsivity in the behavior. And what happens is if people too much put, put too much stock in any given principle, like this is the silver magic bullet that's going to fix everything, yeah. uh, they get really disappointed and they go, well, this is stupid. Screw it. I'm just going to, you know, I'm going back to my addiction because obviously this doesn't work. So you've got to be so careful not to overemphasize any given component, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, when we have couples come on, right, and we end with their story, we say, what would you tell another couple or individual who's watching this who feels very hopeless, right? right? And so I guess the question we would ask you to wrap this up is, um, what would you tell the person who is really struggling with shame? Right. You know, because I can tell you people who are listening to this are really struggling with shame. And so if, right. you, if, you, if we had them all here in the room with us, right, to close, what would you tell them? Uh, I think it's important, you know, to understand if I'm, if I'm sitting in front of a group of a hundred guys, right. I would say, first of all, uh, the, the fastest way to shame yourself is to believe that because you haven't figured it out by now, that there's something wrong with you. I see this all the time in therapy. Guys are like, I've been at this for seven years and I still only have 23 days of sobriety. And that guy, he just barely, you know, started in group two years ago and he's leading the group and man, there must be really something wrong with me. So what happens is guys will even transport their shame into the recovery process, you know, and they're like, I, I, there's something wrong with me because these things aren't working or whatever. So I would say 
you've got to be patient with yourself. You don't know what the time frame is of your own healing and recovery. You don't get to control that. That's not something you don't get to microwave your your healing. It's it's mm. a slow cooker. That's just the way it's going to go. People only get better at the exact rate they're capable of getting better. And you you can't change that. You don't get to delineate that for yourself. And so extreme patience with self. You know, for partners I often say um I don't blame you if you if you end up having to make a decision to end the relationship because you can't tolerate like that's that's your personal choice. But if you're gonna stay, then I'm gonna ask you to be probably more patient than you think you should have to be, and more patient certainly than you want to be, because every single human being's change process is always more excruciating and slower than they want it to be. And that's just the way life is. So if you can come to grips with that reality and not beat yourself up and absorb, you know, internalized shame about how slow you're going, then that will make everything go better because then you don't have to put the timetable on there. And if it takes you forever, so what? You're still in it, you know, progress, not perfection. That's awesome. Progress, not perfection. So particularly, obviously, like in religious cultures, as we brought up, and for a lot of people, there's this like extra shame stigma around viewing pornography, like, like it's, it's the big bad one. How would you talk about maybe, or recommend, or if it's any different, like de-shaming around the pornography use? Cause other Mm -hmm. things culturally, like being overweight, not a sin, there is shame around it. But like no one would be like, I don't anyone want to see my body in public because yeah, I do you this. Clearly don't. Where, you don't love God. Yeah, you eat too much. Yeah, food right. Whatever. Where with porn is like particularly this giant. So, so how any tools that you would say in particular to de shame just around the topic of pornography sure. use? I, I think I think it's a systemic problem, right? So, um, it is. It's a systemic problem because what happens is. Uh, well, human sexuality forever, especially in Western culture, has been really stigmatized and people avoid talking about it. It's like, oh, we don't, you know, no, nobody has sex around here <laughs> kind of thing, right? And so what happens is uh, that gets a way over extra helping of attention. Uh, and, you know, certainly that there, there are some things about it that are going to cause some problems, some grief. Like my wife and I were thinking the other day, I was like, what if my, what if my kids become super compulsive, you know, sexual people and they're like out having all, you know, random sex with people. And then we end up with like grandkids that we're raising. Right. So like as adults, you, you kind of worry about the next generation and how they're going to manage their sexuality. So that's one sort of layer of it. But the rest of it is this sort of strange systemic issue where organizations sort of get together and through some combination of, of everybody's opinions sort of get together and they go, you know what? Here's the thing. This sexuality thing, pornography, this is like the biggest problem we got. And we got to confront it. We got to deal with it. And so it often gets overemphasized over things like abuse right over things like drugs yeah i'd say i'd say if pornography is our biggest issue as a society we're doing pretty well yeah i mean (laughs) on some level we'd be like man we have leveled up so much if this this is the last killing each other yeah the physical abuse (laughs) torturing people yeah so it's not that we want to say hey stop worrying about it kind of thing i i think this type of podcast, uh, the type of you know sharing that people are doing, the type of open and honest conversation, the type of conversations I'm having with people at a high, high level in religious organizations, you know, where I'm 
talking to people that are in charge of making those types of decisions, uh, those are all helpful. Anytime you can speak out and say, here's my experience when we're obsessing over how horrible people apparently are if they're looking at pornography and the shame that's happening with it, uh, you know, we say... To, to, to those people, this is what's happening with all these people. They're, they're going underground, they're hiding, they're avoiding, you know, being open and honest about it, that kind of stuff. And so we need to shift the conversation to, hey, let's offer help and support. Let's get people open and honest about it. And in that case, then we'll know really what the true extent of the issue is. And uh, if everybody is honest about who, you know, the struggle, then you've got all of these people that are there to help and support each other I think you would eradicate the problem a lot quicker than trying to sort of like cat and mouse it in the dark, which is uh, often what happens. Um, but I do think it's also important, and this is a little bit of a side commentary, but I think it's important to note that a lot of times it isn't the fact that the person is viewing pornography uh, that is actually the core issue that people are most upset about. Um, it is the attending behavior. So it's, you know, lying. It's going to be gaslighting a spouse. It's going to be manipulating totally. family members yeah. and making them feel like they're the ones making these people look at porn. So I think we also have to be able to talk about the fact that it is often a bigger issue than just someone sitting in their basement on their cell phone looking at pornography at 2 a.m. It's all the relationship problems that arise from it. Totally. That's awesome. Tell us how how do people find you? How do they follow you? Read you, know, you whatever you, it is, whatever it is you want to send them. You you have Just a podcast send, yourself too, right? I do. Yeah, so it's called uh, Pocket Therapist, and it's on all the major podcast apps. And it's actually just about all things mental health. It's like where I get to flex my other mental health muscles and talk about whatever I want. So awesome. uh, it's rarely about porn, but sometimes it might be. So I've got that. I'm on Instagram as Dr. Adam Moore. Um, and again, that's a place where I tend to post just lots of little like, you know, nuggets of wisdom in a little square wherever yep. I can. <laughs> um, I, you know, I'm on there. AdamMmore.com is my personal website and then you know for people that want to that ha- have access to counseling in, in utah for example or las vegas they can look up either lasvegascounseling.com or utahvalleycounseling.com and um you know people often don't realize this that the phone number that is on the internet on my website goes directly to me uh in fact it's kind of funny because sometimes people call and they think they're going to get a you know, receptionist. And then I go, hi, this is Adam. And I, there's always a gasp on the other, <laughs> the other line. Wait, wait a minute. I'm actually talking to you. So I'll take, I'll field calls. If people want to call me, they have questions. They live outside of Utah and I'm never going to see them in therapy. I'm happy to answer phone calls. I don't charge money to spend 15 minutes or 20 minutes on the phone with you answering questions. It might take me seven to 10 days to get back to you because I get a lot of calls. But I, I hope people realize that, you know, if they need help, and they have a question or they're wondering about something, they want a recommendation, they are more than welcome to call me. I'm I don't bite and I try to I try to answer everybody's questions. So That's awesome. Crushed it. Well, um I, I will still stand by the fact that uh that you're a freaking big deal. I mean, thanks for just dropping <laughs> some knowledge well, on us you. and stuff. <laughs> um yeah, this was awesome. Thanks a ton. We'll um you know, we'll we'll blog post it too and so, you know, links to Utah Valley and all your stuff we'll kind of have on there as well. Honestly, seriously appreciate your time. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. It was fun. I enjoyed it.